Chapter 8 of Mrs. Dalloway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Chapter 8. I met Clarissa in the park this morning, said Hugh Whitbread, diving into the castle, anxious to pay himself this little tribute for he had only to come to London, and he met everybody at once. The greedy, one of the greediest men she had ever known, Millibush thought, who observed men with unflinching rectitude, and was capable of everlasting devotion, to her own sex in particular, being knobbed, scraped, angular, and entirely without feminine charm. Do you know who's in town? said Lady Bruton, suddenly bethinking her our old friend peter walsh they all smiled peter walsh and mr dalloway was genuinely glad Millibush thought and mr whitbread thought only of his chicken peter walsh all three lady bruton hugh whitbread and richard dalloway remembered the same thing how passionately peter had been in love been rejected gone to india come a cropper made a mess of things and richard dalloway had a very great liking for the dear old fellow too milly bush saw that saw a depth in the brown of his eyes saw him hesitate consider which interested her as mr dalloway always interested her for what was he thinking she wondered about peter walsh that peter walsh had been in love with clarissa that he would go back directly after lunch and find clarissa that he would tell her in so many words that he loved her yes he would say that milly brush once might almost have fallen in love with these silences and mr dalloway was always so dependable such a gentleman too now being forty lady bruton had only to nod or turn her head a little abruptly and milly brush took the signal however deeply she might be sunk in these reflections of a detached spirit of an uncorrupted soul whom life could not bamboozle because life had not offered her a trinket of the slightest value not a curl smile lip cheek nose nothing whatever lady bruton had only to nod and perkins was instructed to quicken the coffee yes peter walsh has come back said lady bruton it was vaguely flattering to them all he had come back battered unsuccessful to their secure shores but to help him they reflected was impossible there was some flaw in his character hugh whitbread said one might of course mention his name to so-and-so he wrinkled lugubriously consequentially at the thought of the letters he would write to the heads of government offices about my old friend peter walsh and so on but it wouldn't lead to anything not to anything permanent because of his character in trouble with some woman said lady bruton they had all guessed that that was at the bottom of it however said lady bruton anxious to leave the subject we shall hear the whole story from peter himself the coffee was very slow in coming the address murmured hugh whitbread and there was at once a ripple in the grey tide of service which washed round lady bruton day in day out collecting intercepting enveloping her in a fine tissue which broke concussions mitigated interruptions and spread round the house in brook street a fine net where things lodged and were picked out accurately instantly 
by grey-haired Perkins, who had been with Lady Bruton these thirty years, and now wrote down the address, handed it to Mr. Whitbread, who took out his pocket-book, raised his eyebrows, and slipped it in among documents of the highest importance, said that he would get Evelyn to ask him to lunch. They were waiting to bring the coffee until Mr. Whitbread had finished. Hugh was very slow, Lady Bruton thought. He was getting fat, she noticed. Richard always kept himself in the pink of condition. She was getting impatient. The whole of her being was setting positively, undeniably, domineeringly brushing aside all this unnecessary trifling, Peter Walsh and his affairs, upon the subject which engaged her attention, and not merely her attention, but that fibre which was the ramrod of her soul, that essential part of her, without which Millicent Bruton would not have been Millicent Bruton, that project for emigrating young people of both sexes, born of respectable parents, and setting them up with a fair prospect of doing well in Canada. She exaggerated. She had perhaps lost her sense of proportion. Emigration was not to others the obvious remedy. The sublime conception. It was not to them, not to Hugh or Richard or even devoted Miss Brush, the liberator of the pent egotism, which a strong martial woman, well-nourished, well-descended, of direct impulses, downright feelings, and a little introspective power, broad and simple, why could not everyone be broad and simple, she asked, feels rise within her. Once youth is past, and must eject upon some object. It may be emigration, it may be emancipation, but whatever it be, this object round which the essence of her soul is daily secreted becomes inevitably prismatic, lustrous, half-looking-glass, half-precious stone, now carefully hidden in case people should sneer at it, now proudly displayed. Emigration had become, in short, largely Lady Bruton but she had to write, and one letter to the times, she used to say to Miss Brush, cost her more than to organize an expedition to South Africa, which she had done in the war. After a morning's battle beginning, tearing up, beginning again, she used to feel the futility of her own womanhood, as she felt it on no other occasion, and would turn gratefully to the thought of Hugh Whitbread, who possessed, no one could doubt it, the art of writing letters to the times a being so differently constituted from herself with such a command of language able to put things as editors like them put had passions which one could not call simply greed lady bruton often suspended judgment upon men in deference to the mysterious accord in which they but no woman stood to the laws of the universe knew how to put things knew what was said so that if Richard advised her, and Hugh wrote for her, she was sure of being somehow right. So she let Hugh eat his souffle, asked after poor Evelyn, waited until they were smoking, and then said, Milly, would you fetch the papers? And Miss Brush went out, came back, laid papers on the table, and Hugh produced his fountain pen, his silver fountain pen, which had done twenty years' service, he said, unscrewing the cap it was still in perfect order he had shown it to the makers there was no reason they said why it should ever wear out which was somehow to hugh's credit and to the credit of the sentiments which his pen expressed so richard dalloway felt 
as Hugh began carefully writing capital letters with rings round them in the margin, and thus marvellously reduced Lady Bruton's tangles to sense, to grammar such as the editor of the Times, Lady Bruton felt, watching the marvellous transformation, must respect. Hugh was slow. He was pertinacious. Richard said one must take risks. Hugh proposed modifications in deference to people's feelings, which, he said rather tartly when Richard laughed, had to be considered, and read out how, therefore, we are of opinion that the times are ripe. The superfluous youth of our ever-increasing population, what we owe to the dead, which Richard thought all stuffing and bunkum, but no harm in it, of course, and Hugh went on drafting sentiments in alphabetical order of the highest nobility, brushing the cigar ash from his waistcoat, and summing up now and then the progress they had made until, finally, he read out the draft of a letter which Lady Bruton felt certain was a masterpiece. Could her own meaning sound like that? Hugh could not guarantee that the editor would put it in, but he would be meeting somebody at luncheon. Whereupon Lady Bruton, who seldom did a graceful thing, stuffed all Hugh's carnations into the front of her dress, and flinging her hands out called him, My Prime Minister. What she would have done without them both she did not know. They rose, and Richard Dalloway strolled off as usual to have a look at the general's portrait, because he meant, whenever he had a moment of leisure, to write a history of Lady Bruton's family and Millicent Bruton was very proud of her family. But they could wait, they could wait, she said, looking at the picture, meaning that her family of military men, administrators, admirals, had been men of action who had done their duty, and Richard's first duty was to his country, but it was a fine face, she said, and all the papers were ready for Richard, down at Aldmixton, whenever the time came. The Labour government, she meant. Ah, the news from India, she cried. And then, as they stood in the hall, taking yellow gloves from the bowl on the malachite table, and Hugh was offering Miss Brush, with quite unnecessary courtesy, some discarded ticket or other compliment, which she loathed from the depths of her heart and blushed brick red, Richard turned to Lady Bruin, with his hat in his hand, and said, We shall see you at our party tonight whereupon Lady Bruton resumed the magnificence which letter-writing had shattered. She might come, or she might not come. Clarissa had wonderful energy. Parties terrified Lady Bruton. But then she was getting old. So she intimated, standing at her doorway, handsome, very erect, while her child stretched behind her, and Miss Brush disappeared into the background with her hands full of papers and Lady Bruton went ponderously, majestically, up to her room, lay, one arm extended, on the sofa. She sighed, she snored, not that she was asleep, only drowsy and heavy, drowsy and heavy, like a field of clover in the sunshine this hot June day, with the bees going round and about, and the yellow butterflies. Always she went back to those fields down in Devonshire, where she had jumped the brooks on Patty, her pony, with Mortimer and Tom, her brothers. And there were the dogs, there were the rats. There were her father and mother on the lawn under the trees, 
with the teethings out, and the bed of dahlias, the hollyhocks, the pampas grass, and they, little wretches, always up to some mischief, stealing back through the shrubbery, so as not to be seen, all bedraggled from some roguery. What old nurse used to say about her frocks? Ah, dear, she remembered. It was Wednesday in Brook Street. Those kind, good fellows, Richard Dalloway, Hugh Whitbread, had gone this hot day through the streets, whose growl came up to her lying on the sofa. Power was hers, position, income. She had lived in the forefront of her time. She had had good friends, known the ablest men of her day. Murmuring London flowed up to her, and her hand, lying on the sofa back, curled upon some imaginary baton such as her grandfather's might have held, holding what she seemed, drowsy and heavy, to be commanding battalions marching to Canada, and those good fellows walking across London, that territory of theirs, that little bit of carpet, Mayfair. And they went further and further from her, being attached to her by a thin thread, since they had lunched with her, which would stretch and stretch, get thinner and thinner as they walked across London, as if one's friends were attached to one's body, after lunching with them by a thin thread, which, as she dozed there, became hazy with the sound of bells, striking the hour or ringing to service, as a single spider's thread is blotted with raindrops and burdened, sags down. So she slept. And Richard Dalloway and Hugh Whitbread hesitated at the corner of Conduit Street at the very moment that Millicent Bruton, lying on the sofa, let the thread snap, snored. Contrary winds buffeted at the street corner. They looked in at a shop window. They did not wish to buy or talk but to part, only with contrary winds buffeting the street corner, with some sort of lapse in the tides of the body, two forces meeting in a swirl, morning and afternoon, they paused. Some newspaper placard went up in the air, gallantly, like a kite at first, then paused, swooped, fluttered, and a lady's veil hung. Yellow awnings trembled, the speed of the morning traffic slackened, and single carts rattled carelessly down half-empty streets. In Norfolk, of which Richard Dalloway was half-thinking, a soft, warm wind blew back the petals, confused the waters, ruffled the flowering grasses. Haymakers, who had pitched beneath hedges to sleep away the morning toil, parted curtains of green blades, moved trembling globes of cow parsley to see the sky, the blue, the steadfast, the blazing summer sky. Aware that he was looking at a silver two-handled Jacobian mug, and that Hugh Whitbread admired condescendingly with airs of a connoisseurship, a Spanish necklace which he thought of asking the price of in case Evelyn might like it. Still Richard was torpid, could not think or move. Life had thrown up this wreckage, shop windows full of colored paste, and one stood stark with the lethargy of the old, stiff with the rigidity of the old, looking in. Evelyn Whitbread might like to buy this Spanish necklace, so she might. Yawn he must. Hugh was going into the shop. Right you are, said Richard, following. Goodness knows he didn't want to go buying necklaces with Hugh, 
but there are tides in the body. Morning meets afternoon. Born like a frail shallop on deep, deep floods, Lady Bruton's great-grandfather and his memoir and his campaigns in North America were whelmed and sunk, and Millicent Bruton too. She went under. Richard didn't care a straw what became of emigration. About that letter, whether the editor put it in or not. The necklace hung stretched between Hugh's admirable fingers. Let him give it to a girl, if he must buy jewels. Any girl, any girl in the street. For the worthlessness of this life did strike Richard pretty forcibly, buying necklaces for Evelyn. If he'd had a boy, he'd have said, work, work. But he had his Elizabeth. He adored his Elizabeth. I should like to see Mr. Dubonnet, said Hugh in his curt, worldly way. It appeared that this Dubonnet had the measurements of Mrs. Whitbread's neck, or, more strangely still, knew her views upon Spanish jewelry and the extent of her possessions in that line, which Hugh could not remember, all of which seemed to Richard Dalloway awfully odd, for he never gave Clarissa presents, except a bracelet two or three years ago, which had not been a success she never wore it it pained him to remember that she never wore it and as a single spider's thread after wavering here and there attaches itself to the point of a leaf so richard's mind recovering from its lethargy set now on his wife clarissa whom peter walsh had loved so passionately and richard had had a sudden vision of her there at luncheon of himself and clarissa of their life together and he drew the tray of old jewels toward him, and taking up first this brooch, then that ring. How much is that? he asked, but doubted his own taste. He wanted to open the drawing-room door and come in holding out something. A present for Clarissa. Only what? But he was on his legs again. He was unspeakably pompous. Really, after dealing here for thirty-five years, he was not going to be put off by a mere boy who did not know his business, for Dubonnet, it seemed, was out, and Hugh would not buy anything until Mr. Dubonnet chose to be in, at which the youth flushed and bowed his correct little bow. It was all perfectly correct, and yet Richard couldn't have said that to save his life. Why these people stood that damned insolence he could not conceive. Hugh was becoming an intolerable ass, Richard Dalloway could not stand more than an hour of his society, and, flicking his bowler hat by way of farewell, Richard turned at the corner of Conduit Street, eager, yes, very eager, to travel that spider's thread of attachment between himself and Clarissa. He would go straight to her in Westminster. But he wanted to come in holding something. Flowers? Yes, flowers, since he did not trust his taste in gold any number of flowers roses orchids to celebrate what was reckoning things as he will an event this feeling about her when they spoke of peter walsh at luncheon and they never spoke of it not for years had they spoken of it which he thought grasping his red and white roses together a vast bunch in tissue paper is the greatest mistake in the world the time comes when it can't be said one's too shy to say it he thought pocketing his sixpence or two of change, setting off with his great bunch held against his body to Westminster to say straight out in so many words, whatever she might think of him, 
holding out his flowers. I love you. Why not? Really, it was a miracle thinking of the war, and thousands of poor chaps, with all their lives before them, shoveled together, already half forgotten. It was a miracle. Here he was, walking across London to say to Clarissa in so many words that he loved her, which one never does say, he thought. Partly one's lazy, partly one's shy. And Clarissa, it was difficult to think of her, except in starts, as at luncheon, when he saw her quite distinctly their whole life. He stopped at the crossing and repeated, being simple by nature and undebauched, because he had tramped and shot, being pertinacious and dogged, having championed the downtrodden and followed his instincts in the House of Commons, being preserved in his simplicity, yet at the same time grown rather speechless, rather stiff. He repeated that it was a miracle that he should have married Clarissa. A miracle. His life had been a miracle, he thought, hesitating to cross. But it did make his blood boil to see little creatures of five or six crossing Piccadilly alone. The police ought to have stopped the traffic at once. He had no illusions about the London police. Indeed, he was collecting evidence of their malpractices, and those costermongers, not allowed to stand their barrows in the streets, and prostitutes, good lord, the fault wasn't in them, nor in young men either, but in our detestable social system and so forth, all of which he considered, could be seen considering, grey, dogged, dapper, clean, as he walked across the park to tell his wife that he loved her. For he would say it in so many words when he came into the room, because it is a thousand pities never to say what one feels, he thought, crossing the green park and observing with pleasure how in the shade of the trees whole families, poor families, were sprawling. Children kicking up their legs, sucking milk, paper bags thrown about, which could easily be picked up if people objected, by one of those fat gentlemen in livery, for he was of opinion that every park and every square during the summer months should be open to children. The grass of the park flushed and faded, lighting up the poor mothers of Westminster and their crawling babies, as if a yellow lamp were moved beneath. But what could be done for female vagrants like that poor creature, stretched on her elbow as if she had flung herself on the earth, rid of all ties, to observe curiously, to speculate boldly, to consider the whys and the wherefores, impudent, loose-lipped, humorous, he did not know. Bearing his flowers like a weapon, Richard Dalloway approached her, intent he passed her. Still there was time for a spark between them. She laughed at the sight of him. He smiled good-humouredly, considering the problems of the female vagrant, not that they would ever speak. But he would tell Clarissa that he loved her, in so many words. He had, once upon a time, been jealous of Peter Walsh, jealous of him and Clarissa. But she had often said to him that she had been right not to marry Peter Walsh, which, knowing Clarissa, was obviously true. She wanted support. Not that she was weak, but she wanted support. As for Buckingham Palace, like an old prima donna facing the audience all in white, you can't deny it a certain dignity, he considered, nor despise what does, after all, stand to millions of people. A little crowd was waiting at the gate to see the king drive out, for a symbol, absurd though it is, 
A child with a box of bricks could have done better, he thought, looking at the memorial to Queen Victoria, whom he could remember in her horn spectacles, driving through Kensington, its white mound, its billowing motherliness, but he liked being ruled by the descendant of Horsa. He liked continuity, and the sense of handing on the traditions of the past. It was a great age in which to have lived. Indeed, his own life was a miracle. Let him make no mistake about it. Here he was, in the prime of life, walking to his house in Westminster to tell Clarissa that he loved her. Happiness is this, he thought. It is this, he said, as he entered Dean's yard. Big Ben was beginning to strike, first the warning, musical, then the hour, irrevocable. Lunch parties waste the entire afternoon, he thought, approaching his door. The sound of Big Ben flooded Clarissa's drawing room where she sat, ever so annoyed at her writing table, worried, annoyed. It was perfectly true that she had not asked Ellie Henderson to her party, but she had done it on purpose. Now Mrs. Marsham wrote, she had told Ellie Henderson she would ask Clarissa. Ellie so much wanted to come. But why should she invite all the dull women in London to her parties? Why should Mrs. Marsham interfere? And there was Elizabeth, closeted all this time with Doris Kilman. Anything more nauseating she could not conceive. Prayer at this hour with that woman. And the sound of the bell flooded the room with its melancholy wave, which receded and gathered itself together to fall once more, when she heard, distractingly, something fumbling, something scratching at the door. Who at this hour? Three, good heavens, three already. For with overpowering directness and dignity, the clock struck three, and she heard nothing else but the door handle slipped round and in came Richard. What a surprise! In came Richard, holding out flowers. She had failed him, once at Constantinople, and Lady Bruton, whose lunch parties were said to be extraordinarily amusing, had not asked her. He was holding out flowers, roses, red and white roses, but he could not bring himself to say he loved her, not in so many words. But how lovely, she said, taking his flowers. She understood, she understood without his speaking, his Clarissa. She put them in vases on the mantelpiece. How lovely they looked, she said. And was it amusing, she asked. Had Lady Bruton asked after her? Peter Walsh was back. Mrs. Marsham had written. Must she ask Ellie Henderson? That woman Kilman was upstairs. But let us sit down for five minutes, said Richard. It all looked so empty. All the chairs were against the wall. What had they been doing? Oh, it was for the party. No, he had not forgotten. The party. Peter Walsh was back. Oh, yes. She had had him. And he was going to get a divorce. And he was in love with some woman out there. And he hadn't changed in the slightest. There she was, mending her dress. Thinking of Borton, she said. He was at lunch, said Richard. She had met him, too. While well, he was getting absolutely intolerable. Buying Evelyn necklaces, fatter than ever, an intolerable ass. And it came over me, I might have married you, she said, thinking of Peter sitting there in his little bow tie with that knife, opening it, shutting it, just as he always was, you know. They were talking about him at lunch, said Richard, but he could not tell her he loved her. He held her hand. 
happiness is this he thought they had been writing a letter to the times for millicent bruton that was about all he was fit for and our dear miss kilman he asked clarissa thought the roses absolutely lovely first bunched together now of their own accord starting apart kilman arrives just as we've done lunch she said elizabeth turns pink they shut themselves up i suppose they're praying lord he didn't like it but these things pass over if you let them in a mackintosh with an umbrella said clarissa he had not said i love you but he held her hand happiness is this is this he thought but why should i ask all the dull women in london to my parties said clarissa and if mrs marsham gave a party did she invite her guests poor ellie henderson said richard it was a very odd thing how much clarissa minded about her parties he thought but richard had no notion of the look of a room however what was he going to say if she worried about these parties he would not let her give them did she wish she had married peter but he must go he must be off he said getting up but he stood for a moment as if he were about to say something and she wondered what why there were the roses some committee she asked as he opened the door armenians he said or perhaps it was albanians and there is a dignity in people a solitude even between husband and wife a gulf and that one must respect thought clarissa watching him open the door for one would not part with it oneself or take it against his will from one's husband without losing one's independence one's self-respect something after all priceless he returned with a pillow and a quilt an hour's complete rest after luncheon he said and he went how like him he would go on saying an hour's complete rest after luncheon to the end of time because a doctor had ordered it once it was like him to take what doctors said literally part of his adorable divine simplicity which no one had to the same extent which made him go and do the thing while she and peter frittered their time away bickering he was already halfway to the house of commons to his armenians his albanians having settled her on the sofa looking at his roses and people would say clarissa dalloway is spoilt she cared much more for her roses than for the armenians hunted out of existence maimed frozen the victims of cruelty and injustice she had heard richard say so over and over again no she could feel nothing for the albanians or was it the armenians but she loved her roses didn't that help the armenians the only flowers she could bear to see cut but richard was already at the house of commons at his committee having settled all her difficulties but no alas that was not true he did not see the reasons against asking ellie henderson she would do it of course as he wished it since he had brought the pillows she would lie down but but why did she suddenly feel for no reason that she could discover desperately unhappy as a person who has dropped some grain of pearl or diamond into the grass and parts the tall blades very carefully this way and that and searches here and there vainly and at last spies it there at the roots so she went through one thing and another no it was not sally sutton saying that richard would never be in the cabinet 
because he had a second-class brain it came back to her no she did not mind that nor was it to do with elizabeth either and doris kilman those were facts it was a feeling some unpleasant feeling earlier in the day perhaps something that peter had said combined with some depression of her own in her bedroom taking off her hat and what richard had said had added to it but what had he said there were his roses her parties that was it her parties both of them criticized her very unfairly laughed at her very unjustly for her parties that was it that was it well how was she going to defend herself now that she knew what it was she felt perfectly happy they thought or peter at any rate thought that she enjoyed imposing herself liked to have famous people about her great names was simply a snob in short well peter might think so richard merely thought it foolish of her to like excitement when she knew it was bad for her heart it was childish he thought and both were quite wrong what she liked was simply life that's what i do it for she said speaking aloud to life since she was lying on the sofa cloistered exempt the presence of this thing which she felt to be so obvious became physically existent with robes of sound from the street sunny with hot breath whispering blowing out the blinds but suppose peter said to her yes yes but your parties what's the sense of your parties all she could say was and nobody could be expected to understand they're an offering which sounded horribly vague but who was peter to make out that life was all plain sailing peter always in love always in love with the wrong woman what's your love she might say to him and she knew his answer how it is the most important thing in the world and no woman possibly understood it very well but could any man understand what she meant either about life she could not imagine peter or richard taking the trouble to give a party for no reason whatever but to go deeper beneath what people said and these judgments how superficial how fragmentary they are in her own mind now what did it mean to her this thing she called life oh it was very queer here was so-and-so in south kensington someone up in bayswater and somebody else say in mayfair and she felt quite continuously a sense of their existence and she felt what a waste and she felt what a pity and she felt if only they could be brought together so she did it and it was an offering to combine to create but to whom an offering for the sake of offering perhaps anyhow it was her gift nothing else had she of the slightest importance could not think write even play the piano she muddled armenians and turks loved success hated discomfort must be liked talked oceans of nonsense and to this day ask her what the equator was and she did not know all the same that one day should follow another wednesday thursday friday saturday that one should wake up in the morning see the sky walk in the park meet hugh whitbread then suddenly in came peter then these roses it was enough after that how unbelievable death was that it must end and no one in the whole world would know how she had loved it all how every instant the door opened elizabeth knew that her mother was resting 
She came in very quietly. She had stood perfectly still. Was it that some Mongol had been wrecked on the coast of Norfolk, as Mrs. Hilbury said, had mixed with the Dalloway ladies, perhaps a hundred years ago? For the Dalloways, in general, were fair-haired, blue-eyed. Elizabeth, on the contrary, was dark, had Chinese eyes in a pale face, an oriental mystery, was gentle, considerate, still. As a child, she had had a perfect sense of humor, but now at seventeen, why, Clarissa could not in the least understand, she had become very serious, like a hyacinth, sheathed in glossy green, with buds just tinted, a hyacinth which has no sun. She stood quite still and looked at her mother, but the door was ajar, and outside the door was Miss Kilman, as Clarissa knew, Miss Kilman in her mackintosh, listening to whatever they said. Yes, Miss Kilman stood on the landing, and wore a mackintosh, but had her reasons. First, it was cheap. Second, she was over forty, and did not, after all, dress to please. She was poor, moreover, degradingly poor. Otherwise, she would not be taking jobs from people like the Dalloways, from rich people who liked to be kind. Mr. Dalloway, to do him justice, had been kind, but Mrs. Dalloway had not. She had been merely condescending. She came from the most worthless of all classes, the rich, with a smattering of culture. They had expensive things everywhere, pictures, carpets, lots of servants. She considered that she had a perfect right to anything that the Dalloways did for her. She had been cheated. Yes, the word was no exaggeration for surely a girl has a right to some kind of happiness? And she had never been happy, what with being so clumsy and so poor. And then, just as she might have had a chance at Miss Dolby's school, the war came, and she had never been able to tell lies. Miss Dolby thought she would be happier with people who shared her views about the Germans. She had had to go. It was true that the family was of German origin, spelt the name Kielman in the eighteenth century, but her brother had been killed. They turned her out because she would not pretend that the Germans were all villains, when she had German friends, when the only happy days of her life had been spent in Germany, and after all she could read history. She had had to take whatever she could get. Mr. Dalloway had come across her working for the friends. He had allowed her, and that was really generous of him, to teach his daughter history. Also, she did a little extension lecturing, and so on. Then our Lord had come to her, and here she always bowed her head. She had seen the light two years and three months ago. Now she did not envy women like Clarissa Dalloway. She pitied them. She pitied and despised them from the bottom of her heart, as she stood on the soft carpet, looking at the old engraving of a little girl with a muff. With all this luxury going on, what hope was there for a better state of things? Instead of lying on a sofa, my mother is resting, Elizabeth had said. She should have been in a factory, behind a counter, Mrs. Dalloway and all the other fine ladies. Bitter and burning, Miss Kilman had turned into a church two years, three months ago. She had heard the Reverend Edward Whittaker preach, the boys sing, had seen the solemn lights descend, and whether it was the music or the voices, she herself 
when alone in the evening found comfort in a violin but the sound was excruciating she had no ear the hot and turbulent feelings which boiled and surged in her had been assuaged as she sat there and she had wept copiously and gone to call on mr whittaker at his private house in kensington it was the hand of god he said the lord had shown her the way so now whenever the hot and painful feelings boiled within her this hatred of mrs dalloway this grudge against the world she thought of god she thought of mr whittaker rage was succeeded by calm a sweet savour filled her veins her lips parted and standing formidable upon the landing in her mackintosh she looked with steady and sinister serenity at mrs dalloway who came out with her daughter End of chapter 8